We're going to finish the chapter. Read with me, beginning at verse 1, we'll read the entire chapter. Can you hear me back there? Yes? Okay. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In those first three verses, we have a, the total picture of the work of Christ from the inception at creation clear through the sitting down after his redemptive work on the cross and his resurrection. It's all compiled there in three short verses. He goes on to say in verse 4, So he he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of gladness. He also says... In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Sit at my right hand. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now remember the context. This is a letter to Greek-speaking Jews. They're raised in a Greek culture separate from the Hebrew culture in Jerusalem and Judea. And their scriptures, their Bible, is called the Septuagint. It is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when we compare the passages quoted in the book of Hebrews with the Old Testament that we have in our Bibles, we see a difference in the language and even, in some sense, the context of those passages. That's the, the reason is because our writer is quoting from that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, the Septuagint is an interesting translation because it focuses on the Messiah and every passage that as they would translate, it reflected the mindset of those Greek-speaking Jews. They were looking for the Messiah 
And they had an understanding that he was the Son of God. And so in the Septuagint, those passages that are uh, referring to God, or they have some even vague reference that they could apply to the Son, they directly apply to the Son. They had no problem with this. We would read it and say, oh, they're taking it out of context. Well, in one sense, yes, they did take and translate and apply those passages, these quotations, out of context. But in another sense, they did not. They knew that the whole Old Testament was the Word of God. It was God speaking through the prophets and through the psalmist and so forth. Because it was God speaking... He could speak in one context as well as in another context. You and I do that, don't we? We'll read something and we'll, we'll, we'll adopt a phrase or a terminology or language and we will apply it to a different context and we think it's perfectly legitimate and in fact it is. So God's word could refer not only to himself, but he could also be referring to his son. And this is exactly how... Uh, those people uh, in the uh, first couple of centuries before Christ interpreted the Old Testament. And the Septuagint really uh, gulfed the, the, uh, the span between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Septuagint made the connection between the two. And you see the New Testament thought very, very heavily influenced by uh, that Greek-speaking translation. That's important background to understand. And we'll rehearse this as we continue through the book of Hebrews. The second thing, the context also includes uh, hardship and persecution. The writer is writing to an audience of people who, who have been believers for apparently some time. And initially, as new believers, as younger believers, they were able to stand firm in the face of persecution. But for some reason, their faith has not matured. We'll see that later where he, he confronts them over that. Their faith has not matured, and now they're not, not able to withstand persecution and hardship. And they are tempted to run back to the security and to the covering that Judaism would provide them so that they would no longer be persecuted by fellow Jews, but also they would be covered from persecution by Rome. So they were in a very, very difficult place. And the writer is writing to them to urge them and to build again, once again, their confidence in Jesus. And the whole first chapter, indeed the whole, first, the whole book of, of Hebrews, is a testimony to the deity of Christ and to the sufficiency of Christ for their life. They can press on. They can stand firm. They can have confidence in Jesus that he will save them. And uh, the issue then, of course, the same thing is, is, is for us today. The modern application is the same application back in the first century. Uh, trust in the Lord. Trust in Christ. He is sufficient. Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And we see the whole first chapter is a statement of his deity. It's a testimony of his deity. Because he's God, he can do what no religion, he can do what no human institution, no human agency can do. Only he can change lives. Only he can save people, and only he can change lives. You and I cannot change ourselves. 
as hard as you might try, as hard as I might try, as much effort and energy as we put into a self-improvement program, as many seminars as we may go to, as many clinics as we may go to, as many therapists as may, we may see, as many therapy groups that we may include ourselves in, you cannot change yourself. A leopard cannot change his spots. You can't change yourself. Only God can change you. And indeed, he promises in his word to change us and to give us a hope and a salvation and to give us a new life. He said in the Old Testament, he would give us a new heart. He would give us a new life. The change starts from the inside out. He's come, Jesus has come, that we should be free. We should be free from the frustration and the bondage of sin. We should be free from the frustration and the bondage of having to change ourselves and make ourselves better. As hard as we work, we cannot do it. We still come up short, don't we? You work hard, you work hard, you work hard. How many of us have said, oh, it seems like I take uh, one step forward and two steps back. I don't seem to make any progress. As hard as I try, I don't seem to be getting really substantially any better down deep in my heart. I can wear a veneer. I can look good. This is what religious people typically do. And we resort, we find that religion doesn't answer the question. People have left the church in droves and they're seeking uh, some kind of help in other arenas. And those are proving to be unsatisfactory. Only God can change us. Only Jesus is our sufficiency. It's by Him and it's through Him that we can know God and we can know His transforming power in our life. It's only by Christ. It's only by learning to wait upon Him, to trust in Him, to cast all of our cares on Him, believing in Him, that we will then begin to see and know this transforming grace and power that He brings to bear in our life. He's come that we should be free. He's come that we should enjoy His grace. He wants us to enjoy the ride. He wants us to enjoy the freedom that He has set us free for. And that's critical. So again, it's it's incumbent that on us that we have a high view of Jesus. These people that he's writing to, it's vital that they, that they have a high view of Jesus, that they see him as sufficient. For if you do not see him as sufficient, if you don't really believe him, if you don't really trust him, then you'll not know that grace that is so powerfully changing and transforming. You'll not know God and his work in your life. You don't need the angels. You don't need other institutions. You need Christ. Now, he'll work through things. He'll work through circumstances. But you've got to focus on him. He's got to be the source of any kind of healing and blessing and strengthening in your life. Jesus is the answer. Now, he said that he was superior to the angels. And he's superior to the angels in a number of ways. The, the writer is going to give us five evidences, if you will, of Christ's superiority over the angels. Now remember the Jews held an exalted view of the angels in their theology. 
The angels were the mediators of the Old Covenant. They held a, a very substantial place in the administration and the governance of the universe. Uh, so angels were very exalted beings. And it was uh, in some quarters where, the, where some Jews were uh, uh, tempted to even worship angels. And angels could supplant Christ as a source of grace and sufficiency. So he's endeavoring to point out to them that Jesus is greater than angels. We said there were already three. We looked at three testimonies to his superiority over angels. What were they? Do you remember? What was the first one? Superior because he has a superior name or title, and that name is Son. He's superior because he is worshipped. Okay, if the angels are to worship him, then he hence must be superior to the angels. Thirdly, he's superior to the angels in his nature. He has a superior nature. His nature does not change. Uh, apparently, the nature of angels is changeable. It is variable. We saw that last week. Now, we're looking at the fourth and the fifth evidences this morning. And these are, the fourth one is, is technical, and it really is an expansion on the third one. Not only is his nature unchangeable, but is, he's better than the angels because of his existence. Not only his nature, but of his existence. The proof he takes, the proof the writer takes, is from Psalm 102. And he quotes verses 25 through 27 out of Psalm 102. And those verses speak of the unchangeable and eternal power and majesty of Jehovah, the God of Israel. But the writer to the Hebrews, quoting the Septuagint, applies those words in the Hebrew text addressing Jehovah, the God of Israel, the Septuagint, and the writer to the Hebrews take those words and apply them to the Son, speaking of His eternal, unchanging existence. Now, if you read Psalm 102, it's a fascinating psalm. It begins with, it's a prayer, really, of an afflicted man. And it begins with a cry, Hear my prayer, or hear my cry, O God. And this man who is afflicted is pouring out his grief and pouring out his complaint to God. Both he and Zion, his city, have been under God's judgment. And he is praying for, he is asking for healing, for restoration for not only himself, but also for Zion. And the reason he wants to see it is not just for himself, but that all men would assemble and give God the glory. Lord, restore me and restore your city that you would be glorified, that all men would assemble and glorify you. Now, he's, you read the psalm and he, he, he senses the, the sense of his life. He's overwhelmed. And he is oppressed with the shortness of his own personal span of existence. 
And he contrasts his own shortness of life with the existence of God, which is everlasting. And then in that same context, he contrasts his existence with that of the created order, the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, by comparison, seem to go on and on and on. But even they will come to an end. Even they will become worn out. They will pass away. The heavens and the earth had their beginning with God. God created them, and they will one day grow old and disappear. Now what's interesting in how we fit the angels in this is kind of technical and it's a little oblique. The angels were assigned in Jewish theology the administration of God's universe. There were angels over the winds, angels governed the stars, angels governed the seas, and so forth. Now they're governing that which is going to pass away. And so in a very real sense, their existence is in somehow limited by association of what they govern. Does that make sense to you? God created it all, and his existence is everlasting, eternal, if you will. But the angels are in some sense limited by association of what they are going to be in charge of, what, by what they govern. So God, who created the universe, who created the heavens and the earth... He will survive their very disappearance. He will outlive the material universe just as we outlive clothes. And then you read in verses 10 through 12 that the, that, that the universe is, is, is uh, addressed almost as if they're clothes. They're going to be rolled up and discarded at some point in time in history. But Jesus himself is eternal and unchanging. Notice in verse 10... It's God who says, and it's the Father speaking to the Son. But if you read the psalm, it's the psalmist clear through who's addressing God. So he takes that passage and applies it directly now to the Son. He says, this is the Father speaking directly to the Son. And we already have ample testimony uh, that Jesus is the author of creation. Verse 2 of our passage talks about he created the universe. Um, the previous quote that we looked at last week from, chap, from uh, Psalms 45, in verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews 1, describes the Son as whom? God, right? So we have ample testimony. John's Gospel reinforces all that in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says in verse 3, a very interesting thing. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the Son, again, is underscored as being the creative agent of the created order. So if the Son was in the beginning to create, in the beginning means prior to time, and space and history, if the Son was in the beginning to create, then He must have existed before the beginning. You follow? 
If he existed before the beginning, then he must therefore be without beginning. And if he is without beginning, he must be God. That's John's argument, and it is supportive to the argument here in Hebrews. So, the Son will one day, we're told, discard the heavens and the earth, and he will make a new heavens and a new earth. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 testifies to that. John says, he says, I saw, I beheld a new heaven and a new earth. He says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Where did it go? Well, it wore out. The Lord who created them rolled them up like a garment and changed them. But by comparison, His existence is forever. His existence is forever. Interestingly, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says much the same thing. It says, The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Devastation. All of creation is going to be changed. Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, same, same thought. The sky receded like a scroll. Can you imagine that? The whole sky just rolled right up. Just like a scroll. You snip the edges of it and it just... Rolls up like a scroll. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Bottom line is the whole world and the whole universe is going to be destroyed. It's all going to go away. It's all going to pass away. The things that we can see, the things that we can feel, seem so permanent, don't they? This seems so permanent. I look outside, I see the expanse of the ocean. I look up in the sky at night, I see the expanse of the stars. It seems so permanent. And yet this book tells me it's all going to pass away. It's mind-blowing. And when you try to explain that to people, they say, ah, go on, people have been saying that for years, I've heard that before, no way. And Peter, in 2 Peter, he tells his audience about the, about the passing away of the heavens and the earth and the second coming, and, and people say, ah, we've heard about his second coming all the time. No, things are going to go on, they're going to keep going on just like they have from the beginning of creation. They're not going to go on from, as they have been from the beginning of creation. There is going to be an end to time and space and history as we know it. And to the whole created order, God is going to roll it up. He's going to discard it. And he's going to make it new. Hallelujah. So, it's all going to burn. The Lord's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. The creation will change. But they're not the creator. The creator remains the same forever and ever and ever. His years will never end. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we're told about Jesus Christ. He said he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus will never change. He, you can have confidence in him. Though the heavens and the earth pass away, he remains the same. Our confidence is in Him. Men come and go, right? The worlds are going to come and go. Stars come and go. 
Even the angels were subject to weakness, were weak as evidenced by their fall. Everything in the created order is affected. But the Son, says the Father, is never subject to change. He's never subject to alteration. He is eternally the same. This is very, very important. I cannot underscore the importance of our acknowledgement that he is eternally the same in his existence. Now that brings us to the fifth and the last piece of evidence that the writer to the Hebrews submits in making his case of the superiority of the Son over the angels. The fifth evidence is that the Son is superior to the angels in his destiny. He has a greater destiny than the angels. In verse 13, we see the quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a powerful statement. The writer says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Has any angel ever been promised to the privilege of sitting at the right hand of majesty? The obvious answer is no. No angel has ever been promised that. Only the Son will sit there. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The obvious answer is no angel. Only the Son will sit there. The destiny of the Son, therefore, if you understand the quote from Psalm 110, is that ultimately everything in the universe will be subject to Him. Everything. Paul rehearses that same theme in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. You remember that verse? Philippians 2, 10. Who, who recalls that? Every knee. That's right. Every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is another angel. That Jesus is what? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Paul says the same thing in another way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In his discussion of the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead in general. In verses 24 and 25 he says this. After speaking of the resurrection of the dead. He says, then the end will come. After the resurrection, the end will come. When he hands over, meaning Jesus, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So you see his reign being in evidence in that passage at the resurrection after he destroys every uh, dominion, authority, and power. Verse 25, he says, For he must reign... Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then he goes on to say the last enemy is death. The last enemy will be finally uh, dealt with. And then in verse 28 it says a very interesting thing. He says, when he's done this, the son, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. In other words, the son will be subject to the father. 
So that, he says, God may be all in all. Now, the Son being subject to the Father, does that mean he is less than the Father? No, not at all. He is equal in his nature, in his divine nature to the Father. But he is subject to the Father in the relationship of Son. Just as my Son is equal to me in value, but he is subject to me in relationship. Equal to me in terms of his nature, but subject to me as, his, as my Son. Jesus is no less than God. But we have right there in the scriptures telling us that he is still subject to the Father. Okay? But he rules all. He reigns over all. And he lays it at the Father's feet. Now when does all this happen? All happens when he comes back. It is second coming. Revelation chapter 19 verses 15 and 16 says he's coming riding on a white horse. And he bears this name upon himself. What's the name? It's the name above every name. What's the name that's above every name? King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no greater name, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the name that's given to him. All this happens at his second coming when he comes in glory. So Jesus' destiny is to reign. His destiny is to reign, to rule over all of creation. And when all the enemies are put in subjection to him, then he presents the kingdom to his father and there is no more rebellion. Now incidentally, Jesus quotes himself also this reference from Psalm 110. And I want to ask you to turn there, if you have your Bibles, turn back to Matthew chapter 22. Not only does the writer to the Hebrews quote this passage with reference to the Son, Jesus himself quotes it. Matthew chapter 22, the scenario is the last week of Jesus' life. He's come to Jerusalem, he's gone through the triumphal entry, and his enemies are dogging at his heels once again. The opposition is really heating up. And it's in this context where the two major opposing forces, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, are contending to try to uh, do away with him, to discredit him. And uh, the Sadducees are the first ones that have at him, and he silences them. So then the Pharisees take their shot. And in so doing, they ask him a question. They, they, they're trying to hook him on the horns of a dilemma. They say, what, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, there are over 650 commandments. Which commandment is he going to say is the greatest one? They all bear equal weight. And so his response to them is to reply that which they already knew. He said, the greatest commandment is the first commandment. It says, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commandments hang all the rest of the law and the prophets. Now the Pharisees are undone here. To make matters more difficult for them, he turns the tables. They've asked him a question. They've tried to put him on the horns of a dilemma. He turns the tables. He asks them a question. He says, in fact, okay, you've asked me a question. Let me ask you a question. 
Verse 41 of, of Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were still gathered there, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now they knew that the Messiah was prophesied to come from the line of David. He was in the royal line of King David, so he was called, he had a title called the Son of David. That's who the Messiah would be. So Jesus says, well, whose son is the Christ? They say, they respond very logically, the Son of David. So Jesus says to them, well, how is it then that David himself, speaking by the Spirit, David penned Psalm 110. And it's in that psalm that David says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, which they would have to agree with, it's in that very psalm that David's words are thus. The Lord said to my Lord. What? The Lord said to my Lord. There's a dual reference there. How is it that David could say, the Lord said to my Lord, and he quotes a psalm, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus said, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Is the Messiah the son of David? But he's also the Lord, isn't he? He can be both. Now Matthew records... Verse 46, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> Boy, he nailed it down pretty tight. The Pharisees and the experts in the law knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, in effect, that the Messiah is not just a heavenly man... He is God. He is God. Now they've gone to the point where they are absolutely, they've dug themselves into a hole and they are unrepentant and there is no way that they are going to turn around. They've gone past the point of no return in effect. And they are committed unalterably now to his destruction. But Jesus' own testimony about himself is reflected in the same passage that the writer to the Hebrews attributes to the Son. Marvelous, isn't it? Now let's look at the destiny of the angels. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 14. The destiny of the Son is to what? Is to reign. Now let's look at verse 14 and see, by comparison, the destiny of the angels. If Jesus' destiny is to reign, the angel's destiny is to what? Serve. Their destiny is to serve. Whom are they to serve? Those who inherit what? Do they serve just anybody? Are angels sent to serve just anybody? You know what, what role the angels play in, in the lives of, of those who do not inherit salvation? They bring judgment. But angels are to serve those who will inherit salvation. Now, this is important for a number of reasons. One of which is when people come and talk to us today about angels. And there's lots and lots of talk about angels, isn't there? Lots of books being written, lots of testimonies. People on Oprah and they're all talking about angels. 
unless their talk about angels leads to a biblical testimony about Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, disregard that testimony about angel. As a matter of fact, you probably ought to tell them that the angel they saw or experienced on the good side. It's not a ministering angel, it's a deceiving angel. Unless their testimony gives clear reference to Jesus Christ in his Savior and Lordship role in their life. You can warn them. The Bible says that Satan himself, he disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's important to know that angels are servants of those who will inherit salvation. Let me, let me show you a couple of examples. Turn back to the, to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings in chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, this has to do with Elisha and his servant. Elisha has been warning the king of Israel against the king of Aram. And the passage uh, talks about how enraged the king of Aram is now at Elisha for warning of an impending invasion. And so now the king of Aram has really ticked off Elijah, and he wants to get to Elijah. So the immediate context is Elisha and his servant now are being harassed and surrounded by the king of Aram and his army, and they have no visible means of defense. They have no way to defend themselves. In verse 15, the servant of Elisha rises up in the morning, goes outside, he sees an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. He's taken aback. He says, Oh, my Lord... What shall we do? I mean, that's an understatement, isn't it? You saw an army surrounding you? You were in big trouble? You say, oh, my Lord, what shall we do? (laughs) Now, Elisha's response, I love this. Elisha says, don't be afraid. The basis upon which he makes that statement to his servant is this. He says, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Oh, okay. Now picture the servant. He sneaks a peek outside again. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I don't see anybody with us. Would you wonder? I mean, we do that today, don't we? We say, don't be afraid. Oh, sure, it's easy for you to say, don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. I don't see him. Same thing. Elijah says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. He does one more thing, verse 17. Elisha prays. He says, oh, Lord, open this poor guy's eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of what? Fire all around Elisha. Horses and chariots of what? 
What did we say about angels? What did the writer of Hebrews say about angels? Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. And speaking of angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants flames of what? Could it possibly be that the horses and the chariots that the servants' eyes were open to see would have been angels sent to protect and deliver Elisha and his servant from the king of Aram? Is there a slim possibility that could be? Angels are ministering to us. They deliver us, those who inherit salvation, from danger. Another example, Lot. Remember Lot? Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 19. Lot was a city fellow. He wanted to be where the action was. He settled in the city of Sodom. Enjoyed city life. God was angry at Sodom and Gomorrah and was going to get ready to destroy them. But he sends angels to deliver Lot and his family from Sodom before he destroys the cities there. Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. Daniel, a prophet of God, is framed. His enemies have him framed, and he's thrown in a pit where there are lions, and they're gleeful at the prospect of him being gobbled up by the lions. The king, who has grown fond of Daniel, is sad, but he nonetheless has had to do this. So overnight... They fully expect that Daniel's going to be eaten up. In the morning, the king goes to the pit, looks in, calls in Daniel. Daniel, are you still there? Hoping against hope that he would still be alive. Daniel says, yes, I'm still here, O king. How come you're still there? How come you're still alive? And he says, an angel of God came and shut the mouths of the lions. And Daniel was saved and delivered from danger by an angel. Acts chapter 12, the Apostle Peter. Where is Peter? Where does Peter find himself? Does anybody remember Acts chapter 12? He's in prison. And in the middle of the night, there's a jailbreak. An angel comes and springs him from prison. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Beloved, they deliver us from danger. What a wonderfully comforting truth that angels minister to us. Their destiny is to serve. Their destiny is to serve, but Jesus' destiny is to reign. He is therefore immeasurably more superior than angels because of their destiny. So we find that the Son of God is superior to angels in every way, and with each of his superiorities having been demonstrated, having been proved by the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He is the mediator of a new and better covenant than the Old Covenant. He is sufficient. 
Now, in summary, as we look back and survey quickly, chapter 1, 14 short verses, we see not only the superiority of the Son, but we also see the deity of Christ established. This is very, very important. If people are going to come to you and argue that Jesus is not God, you take them to the first chapter of Hebrews and you walk them line by line, verse by verse, and you can demonstrate very clearly, unequivocally, that Jesus is God from the very first chapter of Hebrews. And there are four major arenas in which that deity is established. The first is by his divine names. He is given divine names. And those names are Son, God, and Lord. All three are ascribed to this person, Jesus. Secondly, we see the deity of Christ established by his divine works. His divine works. He does things only God can do. What are they? He creates. He sustains. He governs. Am I going too fast? He creates. He sustains. He governs. He redeems. He purges from sin. Only things that God can do. Again, evidence of his deity. Third, We see the deity of Christ established by his divine worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth. He is the one to be worshipped by angels. He is worshipped by angels. And fourthly, we see the deity of Christ established by his divine attributes. In other words, his very nature. What are they? First of all, His omniscience. He is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He knows all things. If, in fact, he is the creator of everything and the sustainer of everything, he has to know everything. So his omniscience. Secondly, his omnipotence. That means he is all-powerful. He would have to be all-powerful if he is to be the creator and the sustainer of all things. Thirdly, he is unchanging. He is unchanging. And fourthly, he is eternal. So all four of these qualities, if you will, establish for us very clearly that Jesus is God. In all these ways now, the superiority of the Son Jesus Christ is clearly proclaimed, clearly set forth. There is no, there's no doubt about it. He is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Now, one last question. I'll leave you with this. Why? Why are all these truths that we have studied this past month Why are all these truths so vitally important? I'll leave you to ponder that all week, and we'll find out the answer next weekend.
Let's prepare for communion. Is this a good study? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is rich. Lord, there are sometimes difficult things to understand, but as we stay with it, as we continue to read and think and pray, Lord, you begin to show and and, and illuminate our minds and our understanding to the truth of your word. For that, indeed, we are thankful. And we thank you for the marvelous revelation of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the richness of his existence, of his person, of his work, of his worth. We thank you, Jesus, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We could not know you. We could not know about you except that you have revealed yourself through your word, this book called the Bible. We cherish it. We love it. We are nourished by it. We pray that you would continue by your spirit to nourish our lives, that we truly could trust in you and that we would understand that you are sufficient. You are all we need. That as we seek you, as we put our hope and confidence in you, you will take care of everything else. Lord, as we approach your table now today, as we once again proclaim your death, Until you come again, we are thankful for the forgiveness of sins. We are thankful that, Lord, you don't condemn us when we fall short. We are thankful that you love us. And we are thankful for the hope of growth and strengthening well-being for your glory. Lord, bless the church this morning as we come to your table. And as we rehearse once again our faith in Jesus, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Testament. And I happened upon an interesting verse in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. The setting is um, the Israelites have come through the desert and they've come to Mount Sinai where God will give the law. And God is instructing Moses in how the people are to approach him. 
and he instructs him in sacrifice and that animals would be sacrificed and their blood would be sprinkled and uh, the people could be forgiven because of this vicarious substitution of these animals and their death. But I ran across this verse and, and I, it just jumped off the page and I, I must have read it in all the years that I've been a Christian, I must have read Exodus, I don't know, 20, 30 times at least. But I never saw this verse isolated like I saw it. And, and it said this, that Moses took the blood of the animals and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant you have made with God today. And immediately... Jesus' words the night before he died jumped into my mind when he said, speaking of his own blood, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And if you've been reading through Hebrews, you know that the blood of bulls and goats is of no effect. What's the point? Again, it takes us right back to Jesus. You and I sit here today because we have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We sing the songs, we read the book, we profess Jesus as Savior and Lord. We say we believe. And we take communion as a testimony to ourselves, to each other. That's why Jesus says, do it often. He says, remember me. Stay close to me. So as we look at these elements, a little piece of matzah and a little plastic cup of grape juice, but they picture infinitely greater realities, don't they? The body and the blood of Jesus himself. While I was sitting there anticipating this moment, my eyes closed and thinking of Jesus, I saw him his anguish on the cross, just for a fleeting instant. I didn't want to see him any longer than a fleeting instant. And I heard him utter my name. It's almost too much to bear. For you I died, he said. And then the next moment I asked myself the question, I said, do I... Do I really grasp the magnitude of what he has done for me? Can I comprehend what it is that he's done? I can't. I can't get my mind around it as hard as I try. I come away thinking, God, help me see. Lord, help me understand the wonder of what you've done. Refresh me in my appreciation and, and my wonder of it all. And so again, we come to the table and we remind ourselves, we remind each other. And we're making a statement to the whole unseen realm, whoever's looking in on us. We're reaffirming our commitment to Jesus. That's what we're doing here.
We're proclaiming he died for me. He died for us. And we're eagerly anticipating his return. Jesus is coming again. And until that time, we stand firm. He said, this is my body. The bread, source of sustenance for life. He, he said, this is my body. Let me be the bread of life for you. And when we take the bread in, we're once again affirming that he is our source. That he is sufficient. He is our bread of life. He said, take and eat. Thank you, Lord. The cup, he called the cup of the new covenant in his blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. His blood washes away our sins. His blood makes the final payment once and for all, for all sin, past, present, future. You and I stand with a no condemnation status with God because of what Jesus has done once and for all. When we sin today, that sin has already been dealt with. It's already been punished. But the issue for us is that we have turned our back. The issue for us is to repent, to turn back to him. He's never turned his back because of the blood of Christ. So we stand in a wonderful place with him. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's not a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. Nothing you can do to earn it. It's a free gift. Take and drink to Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Somebody say thank you to the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. You'll pass the cups to the center aisles. The ushers will collect and they'll pass around a bin to pick up the cups. Let's stand and sing one more song. Let's bless the Lord before we dismiss today.
Thank you. 